I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is TCS Plus, brought to you by Tech Central. I'm joined via the wonders of modern technology now by two executives from Next DLP, an information security company that, as the name implies, specializes in data loss prevention solutions. I'd like to introduce my two guests now. We're joined from the UK by Chris Denby-White, who is Next Chief Security Officer, and Chris is joined today by someone a little bit closer to home. Fallon Stain is a regional sales head at Next DLP. Fallon, Chris, good to see you both. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. We are going to be talking about the impact of generative AI on the security landscape, which is a fascinating topic. And I, I think, Chris, a bit of a, a rabbit hole to go down as well. I'm really looking forward to this uh, this conversation and, and where uh, generative AI is taking the world of information security. Um, Chris, I'm going to I'm going to start with you. Um, feel free at any time, Fallon, to to jump in. But we've all heard of and probably used tools like ChatGPT. I know I use the uh, the image generation service Midjourney quite extensively. It's absolutely brilliant. Google has barred the many other generative AI tools out there, and there's a bit of a a bit of a gold rush going on in the space. And uh, for the most part, these tools are actually pretty amazing. But Chris, how is ChatGPT, how are generative AI tools like ChatGPT uh, being used in the information security landscape today, both by adversaries and by those defending organizations from those adversaries? That's a really great question. Um, I think the awareness of these tools is still relatively new. You know, um, ChatGPT burst onto the popular scene around about a year ago now, I think it, I think it was. Um, so... They have been around for a long time, but I see in the way they're used both in a business sense and also from a potential attacker sense, I see a certain mirroring effect. So there's the obvious use of large language models for content creation, for example. On one hand, yeah. we see marketing departments and content generation departments inside of legitimate businesses using them to reduce a number of steps, either by creating content outright or creating or refining content that they've written. So introducing efficiencies into that process. But on the flip side, when we talk around business email compromise and phishing campaigns and things in relation to this, we also see um, a slight uptick in attackers using large language models and generative AI to craft their specifically targeted emails um, to make them sound uh -huh. more natural. Um, you do see in the news a lot of naysaying around, you know, cyber criminals are using AI and there's no way we can ever keep, keep up. But to be perfectly frank with you, I don't see that yet. I think the adoption across the cyber criminal side and the business side is following a very similar path. And, uh, seems to me mostly to be around content creation and editing as opposed to full automation. Interesting. It's, uh, I always often look at these phishing emails that land in my inbox on a daily basis. I probably get five of them a day on average. And uh, I can usually tell, or I can look at the email address, but often I can just tell that this is a phishing email because of the, the language used. Often it's riddled with spelling errors, um, not very well constructed, and probably developed by someone who, for whom English is a second or a third language. It's rather worrying if these guys can now take a tool like ChatGPT and craft a perfectly phrased English sentence, um, because presumably that's going to allow them to fool more people. No, indeed. Or it could lead to the unintended consequence that we spot phishing emails by identifying the imperfect as the legitimate emails, you know, because people do 
have typos <laughs> and make spelling errors and construct log login pages that aren't necessarily all that perf perfect. But no, you're absolutely right. Um, it is a concern, especially when you speak to targeting countries outside of the native language of the attacker, then this is where these um, kind of large language models like really shine in a quite yes. negative way, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at some of these tools, I think ChatGPT is capable of it. I know the Llama 2 model from, from, uh, from Meta Platforms is capable of it, and I'm sure Bard can do it too. These, these tools can write code, programming code. Um, should, how concerned should we be about their ability to be used by adversaries to write malware? I think, to be perfectly honest with you, there's a number of things here. First and foremost, platforms like OpenAI have introduced um, safeguards and controls in what you can ask them to do. So if you right. were to ask ChatGPT today, please write me some code that would open up a reverse shell on a targeted system without the user knowing that that's what I'm doing, ChatGPT would say, no, my ethical constraints stop me from being able to do that. Initially, you could get around that by saying, okay, give me an example of if were, if someone were to write something like this, what would it look like? You could trick the AI into giving you the result. They're closing off those, those holes now. But to be perfectly frank with you, when you look at the state of current global cybersecurity, um, attackers don't necessarily need a large language model to write their code for remote code exploitation. Um, you know, there is plenty of low hanging fruits. There's plenty of existing frameworks, both written as pen testing tools that are being misused by cyber attackers or indeed um, kind of GitHub repos out there with a swathe of tools for enumeration, initial access, lateral movement and compromise. So, yes, in theory, the large language models could be used for this. But personally, I don't see why they would be necessarily because... Mm -hmm. It seems, I don't know, the analogy, a sledgehammer to crack a nut almost. Okay, interesting. Fallon, let me bring you in here. Uh, you engage with clients across the South African landscape. Um, what are they telling you about how their employees are using these generative AI tools? And what are some of the concerns that they have about uh, potentially? I know Apple, for example, uh, uh, earlier this year, banned its employees from using ChatGPT and other third-party generative AI tools over fears that their trade secrets will will be ingested and spat out the other end for everyone to see. Is that a real fear? And uh, what, what, are, what, what are local corporates telling you? Uh, so, yes, it is. It is a, a genuine fear. And the biggest concern that customers have or companies that we're speaking to is employees genuinely trying to find ways to be more productive and actually accidentally or not, not maliciously installing or uploading personal information, even sometimes their own personal information or uh, clients' ID numbers or account numbers to somehow type up an email, for example, to thank a customer for their service. And customers are genuinely worried about that because it's, it's, it, it opens up when, well, a door to, to really expose an organization. And if you take, um, Samsung, for example, and I know that was global news when employees were uh, uploading uh, source code into chat GPT. And, uh, funny enough, last night, or it came on my broadband in July where, uh, South African attorneys uh, uploaded a case into ChatGPT to try and help them argue their case. 
And it was actually thrown out of court because although, you know, AI is a great tool, it's still very infinite in a stage. And the information that was pushed back was uh, inaccurate information. So in, uh, companies are worried. And, um, well, I don't think all of them can actually stop their employees from accessing artificial intelligence tools because uh, today, if you if you just do a simple Google of your top uh, your top AI companies, I think there's a list of 58 um, as of today. So it's 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 an elephant, and organisations are uh, concerned. Now that's really interesting what you say there, Fallon, and that's something I'm seeing a lot. Is there's no doubt that these tools increase productivity potentially, but there are some things that. As a CISO, you know, as companies, we need to be aware of. Firstly, it's the confidence of AIs. Now, everybody has that overconfident friend that will tell you a fact in a very confident tone, and it sounds plausible, but, you know, after checking, you realize that it's absolutely fabricated and, you know, those things didn't happen. And I think AIs are very, very articulate eight-year-old school children in a lot of ways with a wide array of knowledge, but... Mm -hmm. I think um, the main issue of trust and, you know, can we trust the outputs of these, you know, not to mention, you know, as you raised and we'll probably speak about a bit later, how do you control the data flowing into these large language models to ensure that we are not losing more value of data than the value that we're gaining by the results of them? I was actually reading an article the other day, Chris, that, that I thought was really interesting. It stated that a problem we may be encountering soon is that these AI these large language models may soon start uh, ingesting uh, content that was generated by other AIs and, and soon you, they could be sort of feeding on each other and, and the outcome could be like some sort of collapse. Um, and mm. that, um, that, that these companies need to be very wary or, or cautious about invest, uh, ingesting um, content that's been generated by other AI tools. Now, that's a really good point, and that's something that the EU AI Act is looking to address in a lot of ways. Um, their main thrust, outside of the outline things around privacy, around you know the ethics of AIs, they're proposing a common standard for assessment and build of AIs and large language models, so as to enable users and companies and kind of countries who are looking to legislate around these things a common framework to understand how these things work. So those questions can be answered in the inception phase of implementing a large language model rather than as an unintended consequence down the road. And I think harmonizing those frameworks of understanding of how we build these and how these work is a vital aspect because you don't want to be in a position uh, that's like, although quite different, you know, the international uh, electricity plug socket standard that wasn't a global standard whatsoever. You know, so now if I travel to the States or to South Africa, I've got to think about voltage. I've got to think about how many pins that go inside a plug socket. And these things don't interoperate well together, especially at all. You have to buy one of these awful plugs. Um, whereas if we get this thing right at the inception and we uh, have common framework of building and criteria for assessments, I think uh, we can be in a lot better place in a few years time. Is that is that then best done by governments and regulators, or should the industry self-regulate? That is a really great question, something that everybody is trying to figure out right now. The AI Act is the European stab at this as a kind of a European bloc saying there must be some form of regulation. Who does that? 
maybe some international standards committee. You know, you have um, in networking, for example, you have the process of request for changes and then um, kind of the global body implements standards of communication across net networks, maybe some global body like that. I think as far as a country from a political entity standpoint kind of vanguarding this, I think that's going to be problematic because there's a whole bunch of political side issues that come along with the good that countries are trying to do in relation to technology and standards, and that may muddy the waters. I by no means am a political scientist, but I think a global technical approach would, for me, make more sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you must be being in the UK. You must be quite close to GDPR and and uh, and and the impact of GDPR on on the cybersecurity space. Uh, is it the, the, the sort of um, laws that protect people online? South Africa has the Protection of Personal Information Act. Europe has GDPR. There are others around the world. To what extent uh, are those uh, laws and regulations going to apply in the generative AI field? I think they uh, they apply in the sense of uh, both Popia and GDPR and the newly commissioned uh, Indian Data Privacy Act that's just come in last month, all have a notion of data processes. And the whole point of this is to understand the flow of where data goes. If if I, as a company, am charged with processing and looking after essentially somebody's most sensitive data, the data that identifies them as them, so names, email addresses, dates of birth, credit card information, all this kind of stuff, um, I need to be able to understand in my operating and using this data where it's going and that wherever it goes, it's properly protected and safeguarded. And also that the people who gave me that data are okay for me to send it. In the scope of things like large language models, this is where it um, kind of really gets interesting because you post a prompt that, say, contains sensitive data to um, OpenAI, ChatGPT4 or 3 or whichever. And you, from a user perspective, you're sitting at a computer either in London or in Johannesburg or Cape Town or wherever. And from the user perspective, you're not moving. You're just asking a computer to reword something, and that's all okay. But what's actually happening with the data, it's being transferred to servers in the United States, being processed, and then the answer is being transferred back. And these are things that are already covered under GDPR, presumably already under POPIA as well. And these are the things that companies and CISOs especially, are looking to understand. You know, the easy and what I would say the wrong answer is to block everything, to be like, okay, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Nobody uses large language models. They are forbidden. I think having a technology and having an ability to understand the risk and to mitigate the risk in an appropriate way is a much better response um, to things like GDPR and OPIA. Yes, it's good that governments implement a framework to protect their citizens and their data. However, real change and real protection comes from an awareness at a grassroots level of people actually doing things. I think it's one thing for from top down to say these are some rules, but I think those need to be socialized and understood by the wider business community and accepted as actually doable. You know, um, this happened with GDPR. GDPR came in. Everybody was kind of uh, really concerned about what the what the kind of the implementation of this would be. And still, many companies are looking for definitions and are struggling to understand how these rules specifically apply and in all these niche circumstances. So I think, yes, it's good that regulation and protection at a um, countrywide political level exists. Yes, those frameworks should be there. 
However, I think waiting for that to happen before industry starts to act around doing yes. common sense and sensible things needs to happen as well. We can't just rely on our governments to do it all for us because, you know, mm -hmm. there is a personal responsibility aspect to data security. Mm -hmm. That's it, Chris, Absolutely. though. There must be some industries and countries that are uh, doing more than others. Um, who, who do you think is, is uh, approaching generative AI and the rules around it well, and why? That's a great question. Well, I think it's too early to say who's doing it well. I can say who's wanting to do it comprehensively and who's wanting to do it not comprehensively yet. I think the proof in the pudding is always in the eating, after all. But certainly the European bloc um, is looking quite specifically at kind of AI, as are the United States. Um, I think the Europeans from the privacy side and having that kind of large geographical area ruling of understanding the risk as it relates to data privacy, as it relates to cybersecurity, there's some great conversations taking place. There's some draft bills taking place and all of these things that have been discussed as far as EU data bill all seem to be very good ideas. But Again, the real test of this is, are these good ideas in any way implementable, if that's a word? Mm -hmm. um, um, same with the United States. NIST have a really kind of large, uh, they have a lot of skin in the game in relation to defining standards around AI and large language models. Um, so I think those two are very much kind of the key global players around this. And this is both around ensuring privacy, but also there's a lot of money involved in the AI business at the moment. As Fallon mentioned, startups and AI companies are popping up left, right, and center. And in order for these to maintain viability and financial stability moving forwards, which is very much a large country issue when we talk about the financials of this, um, there it needs to be a sustainable industry. And a sustainable industry needs to be able to be accepted by their customers on a risk-based approach. So um, I think potentially that's one of the reasons why these large blocks of countries are looking to address this. Fallon, mm -hmm. sorry. So I want to basically piggyback off what Chris is saying is we've seen a history of uh, South Africa, not, not, not speaking for Africa, but from a South African perspective, we piggybacked off GDPR. We use NIST uh, when it comes to implementing frameworks. So we'll, you'll probably find from a government perspective is we would most likely piggyback off the, the EU AI bill and NIST and, and, and then eventually slowly start maybe building out our own regulation and maybe then the information regulator will, will be empowered to, to enforce it. But um, I, I do predict the sense of we will piggyback off the EU and NIST and then maybe we will eventually start implementing our own regulation around um, generative AI. And I think that okay. makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, because why why should every country in the world reinvent the wheel uh, from scratch? There are no new ideas Correct. under the sun. And if a framework makes sense for Europe or it makes friends, sense for the states, then take that as a starting point and alter that for the specific geo political landscape that exists inside a country. There's no need necessarily. It's a waste of ink to kind of rewrite all of the all hmm. the general terms. So it's just a personal opinion. And I see that happening a lot. A lot of the kind of frameworks for security regulation and IT regulation are very much NIST-like or GDPR-like. And hmm. I think mm -hmm. that, speaking to your previous question around 
who should implement a global rule in relation to LLMs and AI. I think potentially, if managed correctly, that may be an organic path to that if there isn't a global um, body that can ensure that that takes place. And Chris, are there particular industries, and Fallon, feel free to, to talk about the South African examples or context here, but are there specific industries that are um, well ahead of others in terms of utilizing generative AI tools? And if so, what are they doing with them? Um, content creation are using Gen AI absolutely loads. So um, kind of your marketing firms use them uh, for right. content creation and automation of content creation. There's... um. There's a company I was reading about the other day who you can hook your social media profile up to an AI and it will assume you and it will drive your social media profile for you. You know, the question is there as to when does your actual persona drift so far away from your real world persona that actually this is just a site feeding itself. But, you know, that's a that's a matter. So kind of content creation, um, content editing, um, education as well. I think um, I was reading in The Economist, um, it's either last week or the week before, around the fact that we're in a situation now that this is the first year, the school year in the UK starts roughly around now. And this is the first year where generative AI is now in the public consciousness of all students. And it was kind of positing kind of ways in which teachers, you know, do we again take the approach of banning this outright or do we take the approach of actually this is a thing that's going to be adopted globally you know that ship has sailed do we actually move to educating around safe and appropriate use of gen ai ai tools in kind of a teaching and schooling context as well i found it thoroughly interesting but uh, i think that's going to be one of the next big things as well do we need I to can, make it more clear that, that uh, so sorry felon i'll come to you one sec but do we need to make it more clear that that content is generated in an a by an ai I mean, should should the regulations state that what you're looking at here, this image, this piece of text, whatever it is, was actually generated by a system and not by the person claiming to authorship? I think you get down a little bit of a rabbit hole there because, yes, if the prompt was a very like simple prompt saying, hi, write me an essay on Shakespeare's Macbeth, make it 3,000 words, yes. arguably that would be a reasonable thing to do. But more advanced use of Gen AI tools are in the curation and editing. So... I write something first. I ask the Gen AI, change the emphasis on this slightly. No, that isn't quite right. And there's a more of an interactive process. So that may not necessarily be as simple as it first appears mm-hmm. to do. And actually, the question I'm asking myself is in a few years' time, you know, what place are Gen is Gen AI going to take? in relation to people's modern day workflows. You know, if we were to transpose the question back a hundred years, do we, or even a few hundred years, you know, do we have to, for people who are engaging in typefacing work, do, do would they have to have a watermark saying that this isn't real hand-drawn brush calligraphy? This is actually mm-hmm. from a typing. You know, it's a different argument, but a similar one. Is this just another step in the evolution of tooling that we're going to embrace and it's all about embracing it safely and not necessarily we adopt it into our workflows as opposed to keeping it size and high load. These are questions I don't necessarily know the answer to yet, but I certainly do find them interesting. 
So just back to what Chris was saying about schools. Um, my daughters go to a, a private school here in Johannesburg, and um, it was in the newsletter at the beginning of this year about ChatGPT. And uh, what this school has decided to do is actually educate the, the girls around the use of ChatGPT, what, to be, what should be put in, what you can use it for, and what to obviously uh, steer away from, your, your personal details, your ID, where you live. Um, what school you go to. Um, so I just wanted to do, you know, piggyback off what Chris said about the, the schooling. Yeah. And I, 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 I have a, a, a feeling that this generative AI is going to be very similar to a cybersecurity awareness. Um, cybersecurity awareness clicking on that, you know, that link, educating employees, but is still one of the top attack vectors globally and I believe AI is going to be the same we can educate and we can enforce and we can try as much as we can as as vendors as well as companies you're still dealing with human beings and they're still going to click on that link or put in that ID number into chat GPT or put the entire CV in and go rewrite my CV for me or put in your budget your financial budget and say please help me save money you know it's Mm. It's 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 human. We human. <laughs> Absolutely fine. And you've triggered me there, actually. And I just wanted to say this. And this is one of my bugbears around the information security community. There is way too much emphasis on blaming users who click on a link. You know, yes, cybersecurity awareness training around spotting phishing emails and don't click on the link, you know, is really important and yeah. has its place. But as a company, if your infrastructure is being built to such an extent that a user clicking on a link can take down your company. I would potentially argue that the fault of that is not the user, it's the design and the protection of your infrastructure. You know, in no way should clicking a link in an email lead unfettered access of an entire organization. This is again what I would determine to be low hanging fruit. Um, and you know, it's about understanding those controls and not blaming users. Second point really quick, quickly is when we talk about AI, you know, we're talking about large language models and submitting personal information to AIs and like this is a new thing. Um, but it's but it's not really. If you think everybody's heard of Grammarly and everyone's seen the adverts, you know, on, on TV, that is AI. And that is AI that if you connect it to your Google Drive or your Microsoft Word, passes every document that you have in there that you have open to an AI cloud. This is AI in the United States and has done for years. And nobody's battered an eyelid necessarily over this, you know, and large language models and typing prompts of personal data is an extension of this. And it's, again, it's understanding what data we're transmitting, implementing appropriate safeguards mm. to protect users from themselves, to put guardrails around them without blaming them. It's having that defense in depth or zero trust or whatever buzzword you happen to want to call it, in place to understand what normal looks like in your environments, to defend against bad things ha bad things happening, regardless of whether you're using large language models or Grammarly or, or even basic email, just browsing the internet. Anyway, I'm jumping down off my soapbox now and uh, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fascinating subject. No, I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to get back on your soapbox for the next section, uh, section of this discussion, Chris, because I, I, I want to look a bit forward to where this might be going and we know that this technology is going to develop at a at an incredible rate in the next few years and that by the end of this decade it might not even be recognizable from 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 what we're seeing today um but 
I want to talk about that future in the context of what CIOs and CISOs should be thinking about in their organizations and their enterprises in terms of protecting their information and um, and what they should be how they should be approaching gen- generative AI models. Where where Chris and Fallon again, feel free to jump in at any time. But Chris, where where is this going for the rest of this decade? And what as these tools become more and more powerful? I presume the CISO's job is going to become more and more complex, or could it have the impact of actually simplifying some aspects of a CISO's job? Yes and no, as always, in answer to these, these questions. I, I, think, really yes. I think the first thing that CISOs, especially myself, need to really embrace is that the use of large language models and AI is going to happen. It's a business imperative across the globe for most businesses, and CISOs do not have the luxury of sitting back and going, no, we're not using it. It's insecure. We're not going to do that. Because all that is going to happen is because the efficiencies in business line activities that large language models potentially represent are going to override that risk conversation. And that's an argument that CISOs are not going to win, nor do I believe should they win, because it's it's always to me a bit of a lazy answer to say, no, we're going to build a massive wall, lock the doors and say no, you know. The more sensible answer is, yes, but how do we do this safely? Which is going to involve a certain degree of work for CISOs is to understand, again, as I mentioned, the data flows, how these large language models work, properly threat model their use. So understanding, okay, so what could go wrong and how do they work? Now, companies like Google have done a great job. They've um, they've recently pushed up a whole bunch of free training resources on large language models, how do they work from basic introduction through to, you know, playing with their tools in order to make them. And I think that's the thing that security teams and CISOs need to be doing. They need to get ahead of the curve. At the moment, to be frank, we're a little bit behind the curve because of the speed at which uh, things like ChatGPT have accelerated into public use. But I think like with any technology, even the internet, you know, if you spoke to some in-house network guy 30 years ago about connecting your business databases to some cloud environment on the internet, they would have screamed in a security standpoint and gone, no, we mustn't do that. So I think it's moving forward, the technology is going to get better and it's the charge of CISOs to understand how these models work, how the implementation of these models work and identify corresponding technologies that can put the guardrails around the data to ensure that these can be used safely because there's one thing that isn't absolutely no doubt these things will be used and we don't want to be in a position of having to sit on a very uncomfortable risk acceptance when actually with a little bit of extra work and a little bit of blue sky thinking around tooling we can put ourselves in a secure and a more agile um, posture using using LLMs. That's that's how I think things are going to play out. Should companies ban these tools in the short term while they try to understand the impact on them, like think, Apple has done, for example? I don't know. I, obviously, I can't speak to the risk decision that Apple have made in relation to kind of their choices. They probably went through a threat modeling process and deemed it was necessary. However. It's certainly not something that in the first instance I would recommend. I think depending on depending on the technologies you have in place and how mature the organization is in relation to data loss or data tracking, um, 
then I don't think that should necessarily be necessary um, because these, the use of large language models represents, um, you know, a data transfer. If you can understand what that data transfer is, then great. I think the main need to avoid having to outright ban these things is a robust policy to understand as a company, how do we as a company use these and how as a company don't we use these? And then detective controls, if you can't do blocking, for example, or even like preventative controls, if you can, to detect and ensure that those rules are followed. Again, as with as with the approach of um, Fallon School, um, that to me appears to be a more mature approach is an understanding that these things exist and an education of the users rather than a hands on your ears, no, 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 in the first instance. Because to be honest, outright banning, I'm a realist as a CISO, you know, as a CISO I can say ban something, but you know, do I have confidence that all of my users are actually gonna follow that? Probably not. You know, it's about working with the business as opposed to against them. Right. Might encourage some users yeah. to actually start to use the tools. If you tell them you can't use them, it's human nature. Oh, yeah. oh must be quite exciting if they're not letting me use this. Let's go check it out. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess it's, um, it's a, very tricky, uh, a very tricky conversation to have, and it's very early days. Um, uh, I guess CISOs need to, to uh, engage with each other as well and learn, learn what they're doing. Um, uh, to, to, to address these issues. But just, just more broadly around AI, perhaps looking a bit beyond generative AI as well, uh, Chris, towards the uh, end of this decade, um, what impact are generative AI and AI tools more broadly going to have on cybersecurity? Um, where, where do you see all of this going? Are we, do you think we might end up as, as um, threat actors start to use these tools as well? Do you think we could end up in something of an arms race? We could and we couldn't, to be honest. I'm not necessarily convinced by the end of the decade there's going to be um, a large-scale AI-enabled offensive attack, uh, mostly because I think that within a decade there won't be the need for the attackers to do that still. you know, um, The vast majority of companies will still have insecure infrastructures and things that you just don't need these kind of things. Yes, maybe some niche cases around, you know, state-sponsored targeted attacks. But to be perfectly mm -hmm. frank with you, the risk of an AI-based state-sponsored targeted attack versus a planned and pre-prepared state-sponsored human-written attack, I don't see a lot of difference in the risk. You know, these state-sponsored entities have some amazing people. They take their time. They blend intelligence from both human and technical sources to specifically target what they want to target, and are generally very, very good at it. But I think, if anything, AI may potentially help us automate some of the more mundane security tasks and make us better as defenders. So I think... In 10 years' time, I think the use of AI and LLMs is going to improve defensive security, whilst I think the attacking nature and the use of attacking offensive AI isn't necessarily going to grow at the rate that we think it okay. would do. All right. So don't panic is the message about Absolutely. these tools. As the Hitchhiker's Guide says. You are a you are a fantasy and sci-fi fan. Uh, you were t telling us on the briefing call that you're a, that you're a big Trekkie as well. So we'll have to engage after this, uh, Chris, and have a Indeed. conversation about all of that. But before we, before we uh, sign off, uh, Fallon, um, I'm going to give you the opportunity to have the last word here. I just really w w wouldn't mind you giving us a 
brief overview of Next DLP, what the company is, what it does, uh, how it engages with its clients in the South African market. Sure. Okay. So Next DLP is a, a insider threat and DLP technology, and um, it's we could. We, we call it a next generation uh, DLP solution um, and basically we're a cloud-based uh, solution, zero infrastructure. Our biggest differentiator is the depth of visibility that we give our customers from day one. Um, we do sit at the kernel level and what we have found from a differentiator perspective and what we see that the customers appreciate the most is the, the deep visibility into the data movement and user behavior what they have access to, should they have access to it, and should they be moving data into different applications that uh, is either sanctioned or not sanctioned. And from a next DLP perspective, we have expanded rapidly into the South African and African markets, and um, we, we're making headway. Yep. Good stuff. And uh, if anyone wants to learn more about next DLP, what is the uh, website address? Uh, www.nextdlp.com.